I think that might be the first time the words hall butt have ever been uttered at Riverwood. So congratulations on that one, Jake. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor, uh, and I am really, really excited about today's sermon. Uh, but the original plan was for me not to be up here. Uh, because Bridget's uh, taken a sabbatical, uh, I agreed that I would cover her weeks back in elementary. And so, what, two, three months ago, just began, you know, inviting some people to, you know, come and preach on this particular Sunday t- to you guys. And I'd reach out to one, and sometimes, you know, a few hours, maybe a couple days, a couple weeks, and then I'd hear back, I'm so sorry, I'm not available. I did like eight, nine different people, and I started thinking like, oh no, like, I don't know what we're going to do. And so I started talking to Jake about two weeks ago, and I realized, you know what, we probably need to pivot. Let's find someone else to do elementary, and I will preach. Well, that was just as difficult. Uh, We didn't have anyone else available to uh, teaching in uh, Kids Creek. So elementary students, uh, I still get to hang out with you, so that's my blessing. Uh, But you've got to put up with me uh, uh, as well today. So sorry there aren't going to be a bunch of games and, and, and everything else. But kids, even though we don't get to go do elementary there, I still think you're going to get a lot out of this uh, sermon. Uh, there's, there's a lot here for you. In fact, we're going to be in a section of the Bible that's very close to where you guys have been at in, in uh, Kids Creek. Uh, and, and I think the things that we're going to hear today, they're going to be exactly what you need to hear as you grow and learn and uh, mature. But to the adults, uh, we really could use one, even two more teachers. Uh, Bridget just does an amazing job of setting you up for success. Uh, not only will you get to go in and learn the Bible yourself, but then you get to help share it with these kids. And, and, and just, it's a fun environment. It, it's worth it. And, and so you wouldn't be serving more than once a month. If you're willing, though, to, to just be a blessing to those kids, it would, it would really mean a lot. Not that we don't want them in here. We love it when they're in here. But we just also know that they're really being impacted and growing back there. So if, if you're willing to, just put that on your connection card. You're willing to have a conversation of, of what it might look like to just go back and teach in uh, Kids Creek. That would, uh, that would be fantastic. But kids, even though you're, you're in here today, and even though you're going to get a lot out of the, out of the sermon— I just want to be honest with you and let you know that you're not the first group of people I was thinking of as I was putting this sermon together. Again, doesn't mean it's not for you. It's still for you. You're going to get a lot out of it. But often when I put together sermons, sometimes I just think of, of people. Now, just so you guys all can calm down, I do not think of individuals, right? I do not think like, this sermon's for Jake. Jake needs this, right? I think in groups. I, I, I tend to think of like, what's the person who's maybe struggling with an addiction? How can this help them right now? What, what, what about the person who feels like they're, they're wanting certain things and God's not answering their prayer? Well, what about the person who's really struggling with doubt? How, how can we help them and encourage them? Right, so I, I tend to think in groups of people. And, and so kids, while I'm aware of your presence today, in fact, I'm going to try and make a couple of my points applicable to your life, you were not the first group of people I was thinking of. Likewise, ladies, you were not the first group of people I was thinking of. Doesn't mean the sermon isn't for you. It is just as much for you as for anyone. Just like for the kids, there will be some points that I make that I, I'm going to try and make it applicable to you. Everything here is for you. It's just that as I was putting this together, I didn't have you at top of mind. Who was on my mind and heart 
were guys. And that's because of two things. First, the content of the story we're going to see today and the context of my life. The, the content we're going to see today, as we jump into this story, you're going to quickly see that if they turned this into a movie, it would be totally marketed at men. Right? So it, it's a manly type of story. And second, the context of my life is that wrestling season's about to begin. Many of you know that I have the joy and opportunity to, to help out with the Wartburg Wrestling Team in just a couple of small ways. On Tuesdays, we do this thing called Foundations. I just help organize it. I don't necessarily teach at it. And then we host a, a Bible study at my house on Thursdays. Uh, for Foundations, I've been, you know, over the last several weeks, couple of uh, months, I, I've been starting to think, what, what should we do? Because not only this year do we have a, a really large team, but there's now a women's team. All right, so what can we do to help both of them? And, and I've been thinking about it, and, and I ended up coming across this idea of this story that I, I was, became familiar with years and years and years ago. And I thought, there's some really good things here that if they're Christians, this will be encouraging and challenging to them. And if they're not Christians, there'll still be stuff for them. And so I've been putting this together for the last several weeks and, and trying to help get this organized. And so when a couple weeks ago, I started realizing, I don't think we're gonna be able to find someone to preach. I started thinking, you know what, that story that I'm going to use for the wrestlers, I, th I think some of that's going to be, could be good for us as a church, especially for us guys. But guys, I don't know about you, but so often when I hear a, a guy-oriented sermon, I feel like the pastor has just drugged me into some sort of MMA ring and is verbally beating me up. I, it, it seems that when I hear Mother's Day sermons, it's, ladies, you are wonderful. And it's true, you are. But for Father's Day sermons are, you suck, do better. <laughs> I'm letting you know that shame and guilt are lousy motivators. They will work short term, but that's not my goal to make you better for this next week, next month. I want to see Jesus work in you through your life. And so the last thing I want to do is just heap guilt upon you. Rather, I would rather draw you out and inspire you to the kind of life that I think God wants you to live, or to put it in the terms we're going to use today, I think God wants you to dare something greater. So, everyone, this is for you, but guys, I especially ask you to open up and listen in, because I think there might be something here for you. The story we're going to see today is in 1 Samuel 14. So if you brought a Bible, open it up to 1 Samuel 14. If you're not quite sure where 1 Samuel is, use the cheat sheet on the screen or the table of contents there on your, your Bible, whether digital or paper. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we will be putting the scripture on the screen so that you can read and learn right alongside of us. As you're turning to 1 Samuel, let me, let me set the stage. Kids, in your uh, Kids Creek, you've been learning who is the first king of Israel. You're not in Kids Creek. <laughs> but yes, Miguel, he, he would do great in elementary, don't you think, guys think? All right, maybe you just signed up, Miguel. Uh, but yes, Saul is the first king of Israel. Uh, when I was with you kids in September, uh, what we got the, the chance to see was that uh, God used Saul right after being named king to help rally the, the people. Uh, one of the tribes of Israel was being threatened by the Ammonites. And uh, so you see in, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 how uh, he ends up rallying the people, or I think it's chapter 11, rallies the people. They go, they defeat the Ammonites, and there's a unity that Israel had not experienced for a long, long time. And, and, and so 
people liked Saul. They, they rallied to him because the dude looked like a king. I mean, he was taller than everybody else. He was really handsome. I mean, he was like the opposite of me. I mean, he looked kingly. Problem was, he did not have a king's heart. He was a very, very insecure man. He, he was very selfish. He was more concerned with his reputation than he was his people. He was concerned more about his throne than God's throne. And so it caused him to just do some things that just were not good for the people. One of those was that shortly after being named king, the prophet Samuel tells Saul, you are to go to Gilgal, you're to wait seven days, I will come, we will perform this sacrifice in worship of God, and then we will receive further instruction. But as he gets to Gilgal, it's obvious what is going to be next. They're going to have to engage in battle with the Philistines. But there's a few problems here. It ends up Saul brings only about 3,000 men with him. Whereas the Philistines have 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen. It doesn't even mention the foot soldiers. So we're talking an army of at least 36,000, probably 40, maybe even 50,000 versus 3,000. You see, the, Phil I mean, the Israelites had just defeated a small contingency of Philistines. So the Philistines are mad and they have come out in force. And so Saul is starting to panic. He's thinking, oh no, I I'm in trouble. A and not only does he start to panic, but the Israelites start to panic. Of those 3,000, some of them begin to leave, sneak away, and they begin to go and hide in caves. Some of them even defect from the Israelites to join the Philistines. Like, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. As we get into chapter 14, we're going to see that there's only 600 Israelites left. Oh, and I should probably mention that in chapter 13, we discovered that the Philistines are the blacksmiths of the region. They take care of creating the instruments, the tools, sharpening blades, and they charge exorbitant prices to the Israelites. So high that only Saul and his son Jonathan have swords. The rest of the 600, they're, they're trying to fight with like farm tools. So as people are fleeing, as the odds are overwhelming, they only have two swords. Saul begins to panic. And rather than wait the full seven days for Samuel to come to do the offering to invite God into this battle... Saul takes matters into his own hand. But Saul's a king, not a priest. Only the priests were to offer the sacrifices. But Saul, in his panic, thinks, well, hey, I can take care of this. And he dishonors God. He reveals he doesn't trust God. If he had just waited a few more minutes, Samuel would have shown up, performed the sacrifice, but instead, Samuel shows up to find the sacrifice already done. And Samuel says, what is it you have done? And Saul then begins to make all these excuses. Oh, well, there, there's so many you know, Philistines. We, we don't have enough weapons. Uh, the, the people are fleeing. And so I needed to invite God into this because it's only going to take God to, to help us defeat this huge army. And I, I needed the people to see that God is with us so that they'll stop fleeing and running away because we've gone from 3,000 down to 600. And, and so I just thought this was the right thing to do. And Samuel looks at him and says, because you wouldn't trust God, 
God is going to take the kingdom away from you and he's going to give it to a man after his own heart. If you're familiar with your Bible, you know that that ends up later becoming David, the ancestor of Jesus. And so as we come to chapter 14, just take a moment and think about what is going through Saul's heart and mind. Yeah, he's, he's a bad king. And yet you can kind of understand. He, he's facing insurmountable odds. There's so many more Philistines than there are Israelites. They have all the weapons. We don't. People have been fleeing. He's feeling like a bad leader. No one wants to serve with him. If he engages in battle, he's going to die. And so as we come to chapter 14, we see Saul sitting. Some translations have a cave. Others say a pomegranate tree. But we see him just sitting and doing nothing. And that is when his son Jonathan kickstarts the story. So if your Bible's open there to 1 Samuel 14, join me at verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozaz and the name of the other Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other rose in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell, they, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half of a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. In Ephesians chapter 3, God writes through Paul a prayer. And at the end of that prayer, God says that he is able to do far more than you could ever ask or imagine. 
I think those words are God's invitation to seek him, to trust him, or to put it in the terms of our, 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 our title today, to dare something greater. I think God does not want us just to chase after the American dream, to, to just get caught up in the daily treadmill of life. I think he is wanting us to dare something greater, to see him do more in us and through us than we could ever hope or imagine. Time after time after time in the scriptures, we see God doing this, doing far more than people could hope or imagine. And we see it here with Jonathan. There are several things in the story that I want to pull out today that I hope will, will challenge you to dare something greater and, and to seek after a life that I believe God wants to do in you and through you. The first thing that I want to point out today is that Jonathan made a choice. If you're going to dare something greater, you're first going to have to choose to do so. Now, Saul was also making a choice. He made the choice to do nothing. He's just sitting underneath a pomegranate tree. He's afraid to go because he thinks if he goes, he's going to die. And so he's so concerned about himself. He makes a choice. Jonathan, though, makes the opposite choice. He realizes God has called us to battle. We've got to obey. And so he's saying, I choose to go. Now, Yes, the odds were absolutely overwhelming. I mean, it, it was ridiculous to think. But in Jonathan's mind, if God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, if God can part a Red Sea, if God could bring plagues upon the Egyptians, if God could cause the walls of Jericho to fall down, God could defeat 50,000 Philistines with nothing but Jonathan and an armor bearer. And so he chooses to go. However, have any of you been like me and you, you make a decision, you, you're, you choose something, but you don't quite follow through. Like if you've ever done a uh, uh, New Year's resolution, you probably know what I'm talking about. Like you say, you know what, that's it. I'm choosing to lose some weight and I'm still the same weight. I, I, I'm choosing to engage in this exercise and yet you just haven't gotten to it. You know, I, I, I'm making a decision. I'm going to ask her out. And weeks go by and you still haven't done it. See, you can't just choose. You have to do the next thing. You have to initiate. You have to engage. You need to follow through. We see uh, Jonathan follow through on his plan. He initiates. He goes for it. That's the difference between Jonathan and his dad. His dad won't do anything. Jonathan's saying, all right, we got to do this. Uh, when... Um, when uh, I felt God calling me into church planting, I, I ended up behaving a bit more like Saul than I did Jonathan. It, it took me a long time to wrap my mind and heart around this idea that God wanted to use me to start a church. I didn't think I'd be a very good lead pastor. I, I had all these doubts. And, uh, and, and so I, I just sat underneath my pomegranate tree. But eventually this day came when I realized God has called me to this. He won't let it go. And so it would be better for me to plant a church and fail than to remain where it was safe and comfortable and live with regret. Because I suddenly realized my failure wouldn't be a failure in God's eyes. My failure was trying to just remain where I was. It was I could actually honor God by being obedient to plant even if the whole thing fell apart. Even if I fell flat on my face. And so you've got to go. You, I mean, you've got to choose to do it, but you've got to follow through. You, you, you've got to do this. Um, 
Mar- married guys, many of you, you, you want to have an awesome marriage. And, and so in your head, you, you've made this decision. You, you, you know, you've chosen, all right, I'm going to be a good husband. And, and yet you haven't initiated. You, you haven't done the, the next step. And, and, and the awkward thing is it's, it's hard to do that. Too often, uh, we're like uh, uh, Adam. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, you'll see this conversation between the serpent and Eve. And she ends up being deceived into eating the fruit, the only fruit that God said not to eat. And and yet, it says that after she took a bite, she turned and handed it to her husband. It, It means Adam was right there. He heard the whole entire conversation and did nothing. And what I notice in myself in other men, is so often we stay silent like Adam. We don't initiate. We don't engage. We just stay silent. We stay on the sidelines. We stay under our pomegranate tree. And yet, if we're going to see the kind of life that I think is deep within us that we want, that I believe God wants for us, if we're going to see him do more than we could ever ask or imagine, we not only have to choose, we've got to initiate. So husbands, initiate a date. Initiate a conversation. Ask your your wife how she's truly doing. You might even initiate praying with her. Yeah, it's going to be awkward because you're not used to doing this. But the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. But if you want to be who you want to be, initiate. Dads, many of you, you want to be a great father. And yet what it means is you're going to have to initiate getting into your children's life. And so it means putting the phone down, turning the TV off, setting work aside for a time, and getting on the floor and playing Legos, or dolls, or tea party. It's going into the backyard and throwing the ball. It's making sure you're at their event, the sporting event, the play at school, the piano recital. Initiate. Get into your child's life and let them know that they matter more than your sports team more than your hobby. Make the decision, but then follow through. Initiate. I mean, I I could expand this beyond. Many of you, you're you're, uh, employed. Initiate. Going above and beyond for for your boss. You given a project, don't just fulfill it to the 100%. Go 110. If you're a teammate, you know, like, initiate encouragement to your teammate. If you live in a dorm or you live in a neighborhood, Initiate serving your neighbor. It's one thing for us to sit there and have these nice ideas. You know, it'd be really good to do that. But it means nothing if we just thought it and we haven't done it. So follow through, engage, initiate. The second, I mean, third thing that I need to point out though is that you're going to make this choice to to do these things. You're going to initiate. But I have to point out that there's going to be risk. There's going to be risk involved in this. Jonathan, when he concocted this whole plan, he did not know how it was going to work out. If you look there in verses 8 through 10, you'll see him say, all right, here's the plan. We're going to make ourselves seen. And if they say to us, stay there, we're going to come down to you. We're going to stay there, but that probably means we're going to lose our lives. But if they're so arrogant as to say, come up here, that's the sign that God has given them into our hand. Now, how Jonathan knew that, how he came up with that, I don't know. All I know is he knew there was risk involved. This might be his life. And yet, it was worth taking 
the risk. I, by nature, I, I blame it on being a firstborn, am not a risk taker. I, I, I tend to just, you know, want to pull back, shy, shy away. When I was dating Leanne, she loved to, you know, like, hey, let's go do something sort of illegal on campus and, like, get into the ceiling of the chapel. And I'm thinking, like, oh, if we do that, we're going to, like, get kicked out. You know, like, ah, no, we can't. I, I'm a good boy. I, I can't do these things. I'm not a risk taker. And, and yet, as I just shared, it, I realized that, okay, even if I take the risk and fail at planting a church, God can still be glorified. Many of the risks that you're, I mean, many of the choices you make, they're going to have inherent risks in them, but ultimately you're going to be fine. Like kids, it's a risk for you to stand up to the bully who's picking on the outcast in your class. Ladies, it is a risk to ask that woman you barely know how she's really doing. Husbands, it's a risk to ask your wife to give you feedback. College students, young adults, singles, it's a risk to not give into the pressures of the culture, to, to engage in the things that they say is totally fine to do. And yet, you know deep down, this is not going to help me be who God wants me to be. Now, thankfully, the risks you take, it, they're not at the same level as Jonathan. You, you're, you're not putting your life on the line, most likely. Most likely, what's going to happen is your reputation is going to get dinged. Your heart's going to take a beating. And yeah, if you stand up to the bully, maybe you'll take a fist to the face. But you're going to live to see another day. You're going to be able to rise up, continue to follow God, and continue to go be a blessing to others. So you can take this risk when you're doing it for God's glory. I'm not asking you to do dumb stuff like swallow fireworks or drive through, you know, country roads in the dark at 100 miles an hour. Not that I would know from experience. I'm asking you to make choices that honor God. But doing so means you have to recognize there's a risk involved. So you got to make a choice, but you have to follow through on that choice. You got to initiate. But in doing so, know, you have to acknowledge there's an unknown element. There is a risk in this. Thankfully, you follow God, the one who knows the future. And so just continue to give your life to him. Continue to trust him as you take this risk. Next thing I want to point out from the story is influence. I want you to notice the influence that Jonathan had on the armor bearer. Uh, I used to think that this armor bearer was like a slave. You know, he'd been assigned to serve with Jonathan and he carried his helmet and his, his shield and whatever, you know, Jonathan wanted. I, I discovered that's not the case. Armor bearers were kind of like partners, almost like an apprentice. Most likely, uh, Jonathan handpicked this armor bearer and they would have worked together. And so even though Jonathan's a prince and so therefore the armor bearer probably needs to do whatever he says, the armor bearer would have had the, the right in place to kind of go, hey, if you command me to make myself seen to these uh, Philistines and we engage them in battle, I'll do it. However, let's talk about this. But he didn't. Did you notice what he said in verse 7? He said, do as you wish. I am with you heart and soul. I am with you heart and soul. This tells me that Jonathan has been living with such integrity that this young man completely trusts his prince. This is a crazy idea. And yet the young man's saying, you know what? I trust you because I've seen the way you've lived. I know you follow God. And so even though this is nuts, I'm with you. Are you living in such a way 
that other people will want to say, I'm with you heart and soul. It's difficult to get to that place, especially when you say crazy things like, hey, I think we need to leave our church in Cedar Rapids and go plant a church in who knows where. And yet my wife was able to say, I'm with you heart and soul. In fact, I think she was a little more in in, in it than me. I think it was more of me going, okay, I'm with you. Not sure how this is going to work out. But are you living your life with that integrity that other people will want to say this? Because whether you realize it or not, you all have influence. The question is, are you using that influence for your own gain? Is your influence pushing people away from God? Or are you using your influence to push people towards God? To be an encouragement to them? To be a blessing to them? The the way to get this kind of influence is to just be consistent in the small things. As you just continue to do the little things over and over and over, you will begin to build this trust So that when you utter crazy words like I think God is calling us to, people will say, I'm with you heart and soul. But that means just doing it today. And when you fail, you confess it, admit it, go after God, and his mercies are new every morning. And you begin again. Not only though do I want you to influence others towards Christ, I want to point out what the armor bearer did. Do you realize how impacting it is for someone to say to you, I'm with you heart and soul. Like it's encouraging. It is life giving. So not only do I want you to live like Jonathan and live in such a way that others will say, yeah, I'm with you. I think some of you at times, you need to be the armor bearer and you say to someone else, I'm with you. That's what marriage is supposed to be. That's what friendship is supposed to be. That's what the church is supposed to be. That's what following Jesus is supposed to be. It is saying, I am with you, heart and soul. And when you give yourself to this, to that person, to this cause... God makes an impact in you as you influence them. So make a choice, follow through on it, take the initiative, know there's risk, but as you do it, you will be influencing people. And that influence leads to the fifth thing I want to point out. Your influence will make an impact. Your influence makes an impact. If we had uh, kept reading there in 1 Samuel uh, 14, we would see the impact that Jonathan and the armor bearer's decision made. Not only do we see them up on top of the the cliff and and, and defeat 20 of the the Philistines, but what happens then starting in verse 16 is suddenly Saul and the Israelites realize there's some sort of commotion going on up there. And they quickly realize, wait, there's a battle. And they're like, wait, who who left? What what happened? And as they do a quick survey, they realize, wait, where's Jonathan? where's, Where's his armor bearer? And now suddenly Saul, who wouldn't do anything beforehand, realizes my kid is up there. Let's go. And that finally activates him and the people. They take off heading up there to go battle. As they start rushing, the people who were hiding in caves suddenly start realizing, wait, they're going into battle? Something must have happened. They start coming out. They join in. And as things begin to swing, the defectors who join the Philistines realize, whoa, we're suddenly on the wrong side again. They defect back to Israel and they engage in battle. The Philistines end up fleeing out of their panic. 
Jonathan and the armor bearer made an impact. Uh, in Easter of 2020, uh, we could not meet because of the pandemic, and uh, I was really, really bummed, because not only do I like worshiping with you guys, but uh, a few months ago, I had come up with this idea for my Easter sermon, and I suddenly couldn't do it. And then I got this harebrained idea, what if we shot it as a short film? And so I asked Caden Badura, hey, would you be up to helping me with this? He's like, sure. So he grabs his camera, drags his mom along to be the boom person. She held the mic so we could try to get some good sound, but we, we did okay. If you want, you can go on our YouTube page and you can see that, that short film. But I did the sermon uh, in, uh, in the short film style. And my opening illustration was sharing a story of me out on a walk where I saw a bench. And as I looked at the bench, there was a plaque on it with a person's name. Now, I think that can be a really beautiful type of memorial but as I'm walking, I see that bench, I see that plaque, and the thought hits me that when my life is done and things, everything is over, I don't want the last thing left about me to be just a bench. I want my life to be such a thing that it has made an impact upon dozens and hundreds of people. I want the same thing for you. Now, if, if someone makes a bench and puts your name on it, I will happily come and sit on your bench. But as I sit there, I don't want to just simply remember your name. I don't want to just simply remember the job you had. I don't want to simply remember the activities you kind of were involved with. I want to remember the life you lived. I want to remember the people you impacted. I want to remember your funeral where there were tears shed because of how much you meant. I want to sit there and remember your impact. But to see that day... We have to make the choice now to live that kind of life. And it's day in, day out, just giving ourselves to this, knowing there will be risks involved, knowing we will fail along the way. But as we give ourselves to God like this, he will use us to influence people and we will make an impact upon his kingdom and eternity. That is what I long for you. So will you make this choice? Will you initiate knowing there will be risks along the way? Will you let your life be given to God so that you are influencing people and making an impact upon eternity? This past Friday, as I uh, you know, was working on the sermon, I, I kind of got to this point when the thought hit me. I think I preached this sermon like 20 years ago. I started diving into my digital archives, and sure enough, I'd forgotten about it. And I was really bummed because that would have saved me a bunch of time this week. <laughs> it was also interesting to see some of the things I pulled out then and differences I was pulling out now. But as I was looking at that sermon from 20 years ago, I suddenly got really disappointed. Not because I could have saved some time, but because I looked at it and I realized I'd failed. Because you see, as I kind of reached this point in the sermon 20 years ago, I ended I basically was like, all right, so go and be like Jonathan. Do these things and God will be glorified. And that was the end. If we ended right here, I, I think I'm setting you up for failure. You, you might be inspired. You might be saying, yeah, I'm going to climb that mountain. I'm going to be like, you know, Jonathan, let's go. And yet you walk back out and you're, you're right back into the daily treadmill. I, I need to show you two things about the passage that, that I think can help drive this home where it really needs to go so that you're not just walking out of here saying, I can do this, 
But instead you walk out saying, God can do this. The first thing I need to point out is that Jonathan and the armor bearer did not win the battle. I mean, think about it. They only have one sword between the two of them. I like to think that somehow they climbed up there and as they, they start engaging in, in, in fight, Jonathan slays the first guy. He had a sword and the armor bearer picks it up and then the two of them are back to back, you know, the, you know, just throwing people off, you know, like a 300 movie or something. But even if they were the two world's greatest swordsmen, even if they somehow, just the two of them, slayed a thousand Philistines, there's still 49,000 more to go. They're eventually going to wear out in their energy. They're going to die and they lose. Story done. The only reason that we have this story is because the author said, and the earth quaked. That was the author's way of saying, God has entered the chat. God showed up. It wasn't just these two spinning. Suddenly the Philistines realized, we're not just fighting two. We're not just fighting Jonathan and his armor bearer. We are fighting Jonathan and his armor bearer and their God. That's what sent the panic into them. So this victory wasn't just the victory of Jonathan and his armor bearer. It wasn't even just the victory of the Philistines as they chased the Philistines away. I mean, of the Israelites and chased the Philistines away. This was the victory of God. As you engage in this kind of, of, of battle, as you dare something greater, as you are fighting against temptation, as you're fighting against uh, addiction, as you're fighting against these patterns of, of thought, habits, the, you know, you're struggling with lying, you're struggling with laziness, you're struggling with financial you know, stewardship. As you're in this battle, if you just try to muster it up, you're probably going to fail along the way. And all that does is bring in the guilt and the shame and you feel defeated. You're going to win when you let the Lord win. If you are a follower of Jesus, the scriptures say that you have been given the Holy Spirit. In the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit is, is referred to as the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And when Paul wrote those words, he said that that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead now dwells in you. So do not try to leave here today saying, all right, I'm going to muster it up. Instead, walk out of here today saying, God, I give you my life. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, do this in me. God, I want to live this kind of life. I want to initiate. I realize there's risks, but the only thing that's going to help me persevere, the only thing that's going to help me keep going is you. But I will tell you this, that when you see God work, it will amaze you and humble you in such a way you will actually have greater joy than if you somehow manage to do it on your own. So give your life to God fully and let his power work in you. Because then the days that you do fail, it causes you to get on your knees, to confess it to God, and his mercies are new every morning. And you begin again. That's what I failed to tell those young adults 20 years ago. And I don't want to fail you now. So walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing that I failed to tell them that I don't want to make the same mistake is that I do not want you leaving here today thinking I just need to be more like Jonathan. Because our goal is not to be like Jonathan. Our goal is to be like Jesus. And as we look at the story of Jonathan, we realize that everything Jonathan did, Jesus has done. Jesus himself made the choice to come to this earth. He initiated the plan, put it into action, he followed through. 
Now you might be saying, well, but hang on here, and, uh, Jesus didn't risk anything. He, he knew what was happening. You're right. There was no unknown for Jesus. But think about that. He knew he was going to be brutally beaten, and he still came. He was driven by love. And so he wanted to work in you. And so that's why I don't want you leaving here today. In a sense, looking at yourself, I can muster this up. Instead, I want you to leave here today looking at Jesus. The one who made the decision to leave his throne in heaven to come to earth for you. So, let us live for Jesus by looking to Jesus. Let us go and make a difference because of the difference that he has made in us. Let us dare something greater. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would take uh, my offering here of this sermon and you would use it for your glory and for the joy of these people. Lord, what I believe you are calling us to will, will lead us to the highest of heights, but to get there will be a difficult climb. And yet, God, I believe this is what you call us to, that, that you, do, you did not put us on this earth simply to get the American dream, to get the house, to get the spouse, to get the, the job, to get the car, to get the children, that, that you can call us above these things, that as good and beautiful as so much of that is, you are greater. So God, I pray that you would help us to just get off this treadmill and to get onto your path, that, that we would escape from this dream and we would take on your dream, that, that we would seek, stop living like Saul and we seek to live like Jonathan, who put our full faith in you. And God, while I do pray this for the kids, I pray this for the, the, the women, I pray it especially for us men, that we would hear your call to give our lives fully to you and follow you, that we would go on this adventure with you, trusting you to do more in us than we could ever hope or imagine. Because I believe, God, this is what gives you glory, but it's also where we will find our greatest joy. But God, so many of us here, we realize how we have fallen short. Lord, we live in this world where we see all these things and we feel all these things, but we can't see you. We don't always feel you. So Lord, that's why I pray that you would just transcend our feelings, you would transcend our circumstances, and you would help us to go on what we know is true, that you are God, you are good, you do exist, you are for us, you are with us, and you invite us into this life with you. So Father, right now, would you hear us as we pray? Would you hear us as we confess, as we say, maybe for the first time or maybe the 200th time, Father, I'm with you, heart and soul. Because God, I believe you can do far more in us than we can do ourselves. You want to do far more through us than we could ever imagine. And you want to do this for your glory and our joy. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. We want to give you a chance to respond to this through prayer, through singing, and if you so choose, through communion. If you are a follower of Jesus, at any point during the next song, feel free to go and take the elements. As you take them, realize that that bread represents the body of Jesus, which was broken for you. That, that as you lift off that, that lid and you take that juice, that represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for you. God loves you so much. Jesus was willing to give it all so that you could come. He wanted to make an impact. And if you know this story to be true, then come. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I just want to say thanks for coming. I'm really, really glad that you were here. You may not realize this, but we actually started Riverwood Church for people just like you. Some of the people who are sitting around you, this is their story. They, they didn't know this gospel, but something was working in them. Something was drawing them. And, and eventually they realized the truth of the gospel. That, that Jesus left his throne in heaven to come to this earth, live a sinless life, but go and die in the sinner's place. If you are here today and that's not you, I'm just going to ask that you very respectfully not go to these communion elements. It's not because we're trying to keep something from you. It's just that we believe God has something better for you. I, he loves you. He wants you. And so during this song, rather than go and take these elements, just ask God, is it true? And if his Holy Spirit reveals to you it is, then give your life to him. Say, I'm with you, God, heart and soul. But if there was a time in your life when you said that, even if right now you don't feel like you've truly been living that, I still invite you to come to take these elements because they remind us that Jesus gave it all for us and he's now inviting us to yet again give it all to him. So let's do this now in remembrance of Jesus.